comes as a territory. So he says, be salt. Then he says, be light. Light cannot be hidden. It illuminates what's in darkness. It chases darkness away. It consists of concrete actions or good works. And all of this salt and light point to Jesus in order that people will give glory to God. It's not about us. It's about people giving glory to God. Now, we've changed the order a little bit because I changed what I was preaching one Sunday. And uh, Pastor Josh last week preached about anger and murder and some of those kinds of things. And so we're a little bit out of order and sync, but I'm going back to the verses just before that passage that he preached. Is that okay? I want to make sure if we have people who are... Anyway, we'll go. Okay. Today we're going to look at love it and live it. Love it and live it. Jesus' relationship to the Bible. What was Jesus' relationship to the Bible? And I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew, the fifth chapter, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, and we're going to read uh, verses 17 to 20. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. It's on page 786, if you're looking for it in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Also will be on the projection. Matthew 5. Verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In this passage, Jesus describes his relationship to the Bible. And of course, the Bible that he's talking about was the Old Testament or the the law, the whole Old Testament. And Jesus says his purpose is not to contradict the scriptures, but to explain them, to establish the authority of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. He's there to describe the ethics of the Old Testament in concrete behavior. And then he finishes with a warning. Now, this passage is not intended to be a comprehensive defense of biblical inerrancy. I have a whole teaching on inerrancy of scripture, which takes a lot longer than what we have here today. But this is instead intended to show us what Jesus thought about the law. What did Jesus think about the Old Testament? That was his scripture at that point in time, the Bible that he had. How we're to view it and how we're to live it. Now, we're going to take each verse separately, starting with, with Jesus, Jesus in Jesus' relationship with the Bible. First one is the fulfillment of the Bible. The fulfillment of the Bible. In verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, Do not think. Tells his followers, them, then, and us today, how we should think about the law and his relationship to it. What's Jesus' relationship to the law? He said, I came. When he says, I came, it demonstrates a concept of a personal mission. Jesus knew why he had come to the earth. He had chosen to come. And he says, I'm not there to abolish or to do away with, but to fulfill or to make full and to make complete 
the Old Testament or the Bible or the Scriptures. Jesus hadn't come to set aside the Hebrew Scripture, one writer says, or to make it unimportant. He had, he had come to fulfill it, which means to do it and fill it full with obedience and meeting, to set it on its feet, not to set it aside. And only in Jesus do we really understand the Word of God, the Bible. I know we have this thing, a lot of people say, well, the Old Testament, that's ancient history, that's old stuff. We concentrate on the New Testament. Well, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus came to give the fullness of the Old Testament meaning so that we understood. Only in Jesus do we really understand the Word of God, the Bible. First of all, the Bible describes the relationship between God and mankind, between God and mankind, about God and man. There's a relationship between the sin of mankind. We go back to Genesis and we realize that, that mankind sinned, Adam and Eve sinned in the very beginning of time, and they needed some path to restoration with God. The Old Testament, is, however, is only partial revelation. Jesus brought to them and brought to us a fuller understanding of God's plan. But you cannot truly understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. We have to go to the Old Testament. It's only through Jesus do we understand the whole picture. The Bible has been called salvation history. It's about, about God seeking humans. God's search for humans, seeking to restore that relationship with us. With us. Lost people matter to God. And Jesus came to seek and to save lost people. And it shows the, the incredible lengths to which God would go to save us giving his only son as a sacrifice. It's a true story I want to share today. There was a Sunday night service, and a pastor told his congregation that they had a guest minister, one of his close friends, and had invited him to share for a few moments that night. An elderly man stepped up to the pulpit, and he shared this story. He said, A father and his son and a friend were sailing off the Pacific coast and a fast-approaching storm blocked any attempt for them to get back to shore. The waves were so high that the father, who was an experienced sailor, could not keep the boat even upright, and it capsized. And all three of them were, were swept into the ocean. The elderly minister said, grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most excruciating decision, the hardest decision of his life. Which boy would he throw the other end of the lifeline to? In a lifeline, he was going to send to, each, to one of them. And he had only seconds to make the decision to which boy was he going to save. The father knew that his son was a believer. He was a Christian. He also knew that his son's friend was not a Christian. The agony of his decision was amazing. And as the father yelled out to his son, I love you, son, he threw the lifeline out to his son's friend. By the time the father had pulled the friend to the capsized boat, his son had disappeared under the waves, and his body was never recovered. The father, he continued, knew his son would step into eternity with Jesus, and he could not bear the thought of his son's friend stepping into eternity without Jesus. Therefore, he had sacrificed his son to save the son's friend. He said, how great is the love of God that he should do the same for us. God sacrificed his only son that we could be saved. And he said, I urge you to accept his offer to rescue you 
and take hold of that lifeline you're throwing out. With that, the old man finished his story and he sat back down. At the end of the service, two students came up to speak with him and one of them said, you know, that, that was a nice story. He said, but I, I don't think it's very realistic to, for a father to give up his only son's life in hopes that he had saved this other son and become a Christian. The elderly man smiled and said, you have, you have a good point. It isn't very realistic, is it? He said, but I'm standing here today to tell you that that story gives me a glimpse of what it must have been like for God to give up his son for me. And he said to those students, he said, I was that father, and your pastor is my son's friend. We have a hard time understanding the true love of God, the lengths with which, with which God would go to save us until Jesus, Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill to reveal the true intent of who God was. And it's brought to completion in the person. So the, the Bible describes a relationship with, between God and mankind and who he is and what he does and how much he loves each and every one of us. The Bible also describes right and wrong. Right and wrong. Jesus came to reveal the true morals or true ethics. By the time Jesus came on the scene, morality had been reduced to outward observable actions. They had all these rules, and you had to keep all these rules. And it was more important to keep these visible rules to look righteous than to actually be righteous. It was the, it was the legalism of that day. And Jesus came, and he deepened the law to the internal state. He said it's not just about actions. As Pastor Josh preached last Sunday. It's not just the, the actions, it's the, it's, it's the thoughts, the intentions, and the motives. Jesus maintained that obedience or disobedience to the law began inwardly in the human heart. It's not sufficient to just perform an outward action in words. As long as you do what the law requires, the thought life must be conformed first. So that's what true righteousness. Jesus came, and all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we're seeing this isn't about actions. It's about internal motivations, thoughts in the heart. Jesus came to teach that and to demonstrate it. He also, when it says he fulfilled this, he came to fulfill prophecy. Now, this is a huge topic, huge topic. But suffice it to say that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about the Messiah about the Messiah, the birth, the life, the death on the cross, the suffering servant Messiah, all of these. Now, some of you are familiar with an author and writer and journalist, Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel decided he, he was a skeptic. He, he didn't buy all this stuff about Jesus and history and stuff. So he set out as a journalist to, as an investigative journalist, he's going to disprove all of these things that it said about Jesus. So he set out to disprove it. And so he looked at the claims to see what would happen. While he was investigating, he came into touch with a, a man named Louis Lapides, a theologian who was born in a Jewish home, and he had long since rejected that Jesus was the Messiah. He said, no, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. We're still waiting for the Messiah. 
But during his own spiritual journey, Lapides carefully examined the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, about the promised one, whoever that was. And what he found absolutely stunned him. He looked at passages like Psalm 53. It says, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressions. As, as Lapides was sharing with Lee Strobel, he said, here's a picture of a Messiah that would suffer and die for the sins of Israel and the world. And it was written over 700 years before Jesus came on the earth. 700 years earlier, said this is what's going to happen. And as he continued to study, Lapides found some 48 major predictions, 48 prophecies about Jesus. In Isaiah, he read the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Micah identified Bethlehem as his birthplace. The Psalms foretold his betrayal, the accusations by false witnesses, and how he would die, even though crucifixion hadn't even been invented. All way before Jesus came. So Strobel, who is still a skeptic, said, is it possible that Jesus fulfilled all these 48 prophecies by accident? Okay. And by accident. This is what he said. Not a chance. He said the odds are so astronomical that they rule it out. Statistical calculations. And he, he took these prophecies and all the variables to a, a mathematician named Peter, Peter Stoner. And his calculations found that the probability of one person fulfilling 48 messianic prophecies is one chance in a trillion, 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 and seven more trillions to one. He said the odds alone say it would be impossible for anyone to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. Yet Jesus and only Jesus throughout all of history managed to do it. He came to fulfill the word of God. The pities actually became a believer in Jesus Christ in the process and, of course, we know that so did Lee Strobel. How many times have we heard the Old Testament is passe and the New Testament is what really counts? We think about that. We think about that and they say, what, why is this Old Testament so important? Because it's part of the Bible that Jesus followed and taught and fulfilled. We must understand and know the Old Testament as well prophecy. And there's continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament. And Jesus had a, a love and a high view of the Old Testament scriptures. We should do. He quoted from the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets and all of that. So these four verses that we're looking at today are a prelude or introduction to six commands that, that we carry out in Matthew 5. So Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Very important that we understand. That's what his mission was. Secondly, Jesus established the authority of the Bible. The authority of the Bible. Verse 18. Amazing statement. He says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now most people think this has to do with prophecy or prediction. Daniel, the revelation, end times, prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. And it, it does refer to 
those prophecies. But when it uses the word jot or tittle, as some of your versions say, the smallest letter or the least stroke of pen, that would be an apostrophe, a semicolon, a period, quotations, an O versus a Q. It refers to so much more. Jesus say, is saying that the Word of God, the Bible, is so important, is so durable, so timeless, that not even one apostrophe will pass away or is irrelevant ever. Ever. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. Are we a follower of Jesus? Do you believe in the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture? Jesus did. Jesus did. These people will say, well, we'll take a little of this and a little of that. We'll kind of throw that out. Um, that must not have meant that. No. If we are a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, we must believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, the Word of God. We have to. Otherwise, it's like, well, I like this and I don't like that. So we just kind of, it's a loose-leaf Bible. You just kind of take and throw out parts of the Bible you don't like. You can't be a follower of Jesus truly and live that way. We must believe in that. The law was a comprehensive term for the total divine revelation of the Old Testament. And it says none of it will pass away or be discarded, not a single letter or part of a letter, until it has all been fulfilled. And he says, and this fulfillment will not be completed until heaven and earth themselves pass away. Wow, strong words, strong words. And of course then we'll know time as we know it will cease. And, and the written words of God's law will no longer be needed for all things will have been fulfilled at that point in time. Two passages of scripture, 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When it says all scripture, he was referring to the whole of the Old and New Testament, everything that was Scripture. Second Timothy, this is Paul that's writing this. And it's God-breathed. It's, it's emanated from God. And Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Two really critical passages of Scripture. And that's what we base our life and faith on. All Scripture. All Scripture. And the law pertains specifically to all parts of the Old Testament. It includes Proverbs, Genesis, the Law, Ten Commandments, the Moral Codes, all of those things. Love it. Jesus loved it. The question is, I get a medal. Is that okay? Okay. Are you studying the Bible? How many of us are actually reading the Bible? Reading the Bible. We're listening to it on line. Jesus says not even one apostrophe will pass away. There's permanence. There's permanent validity to that. It's not just for old people generations past. It's relevant for us today. The law for Jesus was the expression of God's will. The will of God is eternal, unchangeable, and Jesus did not come to modify the will of God. 
he actually fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. How do we discover the will of God? How do, how do we know what God's will is? The Bible. The Bible. How do we learn to follow Jesus? What is our primary way to develop our relationship with Jesus? Now, it, our relationship with God and with Jesus can't be just, ac- just, just experiential. It can't be just academic. Or, or, there has to be an experience. We have, we have an experience with God. We actually meet God. It's a personal relationship that is intended. But the Word of God is God revealed. So that's how we learn how to relate to Him. He said, I came to fulfill the Word of God. Fulfill the Word. Now, we live today in a lot of subjectivism. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And we know this. We see this all over the place. I decide what's right. I decide what's wrong. And if, if I decide what's right and wrong, then I become God. It's very convenient. But it's a good day when we always real, all of a sudden realize that I'm not God. I'm not God. I need to find out what does God say? Who is God? And I've talked to people, I've talked to professing Christians who felt it was fine to, to live together and sleep together as long as they were truly committed to each other, not married, male, female. And they said, well, we, we, we feel it's okay. And, well, it's not about feelings. It's not about feelings. And we have this, we have this whole subjectivism, and I'll just touch on this a little bit, that... It's whatever I feel. If I feel like I'm a woman, I'm a woman. If I feel like a man, I'm a man. It's all on, on subjective feelings. Subjectivism. And I'm going to self-identify or whatever. Well, it was very interesting. There's a 69-year-old man in England. Okay, true story. There's a 69-year-old man in England who wanted access to a dating site online for younger people. Okay. So he actually sued for the right to identify as a 40-year-old man so he could qualify to be on the dating site. It's, it's in the courts in Great Britain. He actually won. He said, I'm identifying as a 40-year-old man so I can be on that site. And we say, it's absurd. Absurd. Of course it is. And a high school in Virginia discovered problems with self-identifying as a male who was using the girl's restroom and there was a sexual assault. Feelings have nothing to do with reality when it comes to gender or gender identity. One of the things that we have to be careful of is, is not to seek God's will in an area that is not specifically addressed in Scripture if we are intentionally disregarding God's already revealed will. If we leave the authority of the Word of God, we, we have all kinds of nonsense. It's just incredible what happens when we do that. Jesus loved the Bible. And the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible, his personal library. Then we come to verse 19. Let's look at verse 19. Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There are two contrasting behaviors here, two contrasting behaviors. First one is diminishing the Bible. He says, anyone who breaks or looses it. And this, this points more to more than an isolated breaking of a commandment here and there. This refers to a lifestyle of disregard, of loose living. Doing what I want, placing my will ahead of God's will. And isn't that always where the battle is? 
Isn't that always where the battle is? My way or God's way? And this addresses when we loosen or we minimize by our actions or even by our teaching. And the, the implication is not only people who are teachers, but all of us, by our behavior, will influence and teach others. We have a circle of influence, whatever that is. So no matter what position we're in, it says we are going to influence and teach others. And I think about parents, me included. How can we expect our children to love the Word of God when we never show love for it ourselves? Can we expect our children to have daily devotions if we never do? How can we expect our children to study the Word if we never study it? Can we expect our children to be consistent in involvement in the body of Christ if, if we don't? At some point, children make their own choices. But what is our example? Because we teach by example, not just by teaching. How can we expect children to keep their marriage vows if we don't? How can we expect our children to practice good business ethics when we brag about getting away with it? Not. How can we expect our children to love the church, the body of Christ, when all we do is complain or gossip about it? One of the first things we talked about when we started Connect Groups was a, was a we went through a book called Loving the Church, realizing that the church, the body of Christ, we are to love. And if we do anything negative or say negative things or do anything to undermine the body of Christ, the church, we are actually attacking Jesus. Great realization. It's a great book. We teach by action. And Jesus puts practice before for preaching. And some preach but don't practice. They diminish the word of God. If we annul or loosen one of these commandments, we minimize our life. Bruner writes this, when teachers loosen scripture, their loosening has the effect of teaching others to do the same. Our way of living with scripture teaches others by example or anti-example how to live with scripture. If you live with scripture in loose or non-committal ways, you teach others to live that way too. This verse warns us in short against the temptation to dismiss scripture, dismiss scripture, relativize it arbitrarily, to get out from under its difficult texts or evade obedience through something called sophistry, which is rationalization, deceptive thinking, or unsound reasoning. Minimizing. Don't minimize. Verse 19, the second half, talks about keeping and teaching the Bible. It says, do you want to be called great? Do you want to be great? Live to do and to teach the Bible. Love it and live it. Love it and live it. Now there's a warning in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees' legalism and our, our legalism is what Jesus addresses here. Um, John Stott in the Christian counterculture writes this. He said, what the scribes and Pharisees were doing in order to make obedience more readily 
attainable, make it easier to attain obedience, was to restrict the commandments and extend the permissions. Okay? Restrict the commandments and extend the permissions of the law. They made the law's demands less demanding and the law's permissions more permissive. And what Jesus did was to reverse both tendencies. <laughs> Jesus said, you can't do that. It's like, how many of you have been to a fair and you take that hammer, that big hammer, and you've got the bell up there and you've got this and you have to hit it and knock the bell out? How many of you have done that? How many have hit the bell? Okay, good. good. We've got some strong people here. Well, if, if you want to cheat on that, all you have to do is lower the bell. Just lower the bell. Bring that bell down. I can't get that high, so I just bring the bell down. I'll do it. You can, you can lower the bell. Well, that's what some people do with, with Christianity, with the demands of the law and righteousness. They just kind of lower the bell. It's like, like saying, I, I like the high jump, but I can't jump that high, so bring it down so I can get over it. Or the pole vault, whatever. It, you can't lower the bar. You lower the bar or lower the bell, it's cheating. It's not going to be the same. And the Pharisees were lowering the bar. They were lowering the bell and saying, we can't attain that, so we're going to lower the bell and we're going to lower the bar so we can. And we'll look great. Aren't we great? That's what they did. He said, here, don't lower the bell. Don't lower the bar. Now, also in that, Understand, we cannot attain our salvation because God's demands are so high, we can't attain it. They're more exacting than that. That's why Jesus came to fulfill. His grace was extended to us because we couldn't reach. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Short is short. We couldn't attain that. The Pharisees were trying to lower the bar so they could say, I've, I've reached it, I'm righteous, I'm good. And Jesus said, no, you can't do that. Grace means that Jesus makes up for it and he forgives us when we fall short. Grace means he gives us the strength to obey. Because Jesus says, unless you're better than the Pharisees and scribes, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. They were, they were relying on their own human effort to make it. And, or, and even at that, they had to lower the bar so that they could make it. And Jesus says, uh-uh, it's not going to work. My standard is perfection. And all of sin and fall short of the glory. Nobody, nobody can attain that. Nothing less. So is there hope? Yes. It's, that's why Jesus came, to fulfill that. To die for our sins. To pay the penalty so it's now on him. And he's the one that creates in us righteousness. You know, you say, I, yeah, I'm saved, I've done. How do I know I can attain that? Well, is there hope? Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. The prophet Jeremiah predicted that someday God's law would be on the hearts of people. What was he predicting? He was predicting the coming of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Law in our heart, spirit in our heart. When the, when the day of Pentecost came, and this is critical for us to understand, we cannot do it on our own. We're, we're going to fall short. The spirit of the living God, when we ask Jesus Christ to come into our lives, 
forgive our sins and to take over, His Holy Spirit comes in. And then we turn more, we just need to continually turn more and more of our life over to the Holy Spirit of God and say, Spirit of God, you work within me. You make me righteous. You change my life. It's the Spirit of God is empowering us to live the righteous life. You can't do it on your own. The sooner we realize we can't do it on our own, the better off we are. Because then we depend on God and the Spirit of God in us to change us. So what was Jesus' relationship to the Bible? Love it. Live it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus, you came to fulfill. You came to fulfill the Word of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we, as we move forward, that we will see the incredible power and strength that you give us by your Spirit to live that. And Father, I pray that we would elevate the Word of God like you did. You loved it. You fulfilled it. You came to help us understand how important your Word is, the Scriptures. And I pray that as we continue to go through this, I pray, God, that you'll give us discipline to read and to study and take time to examine the Word of God. That it'll become a consistent habit that we have. And God, that you would, by your grace, change us in that. Let's stand, shall we?